So when you come across a tricky verse, the important things are absolutely clear. So never let a verse you can't understand interfere with one you can understand. Now, I want to make it clear tonight, for my wife's sake, that I was told to go on a quarter past and take my time, because I rushed this morning, got finished just after five past, proud of myself, but only gone seven minutes over, and Marcus said, you could have got to quarter past. <laughs> so I'm going to do that tonight, and it's not, uh, I don't need to get into trouble when I get home. Jane's taking over Vivian's ministry, and that is at uh, the end time. <laughs> anyway, it's great to be here. I'm going to, as you know, I'm doing James in the morning, as you asked me to, and I appreciate that assignment. And I want to talk about the churches in Revelation tonight and next Sunday night. And then Wednesday, we'll have a practical session on, uh, well, a checkup for the local church. Let's see how we're shaping up, because these letters give us a pretty good idea of what Jesus wants for the church. So we should take a look at it. And I can do this here, because it's a pretty good church. I really like being here. So there were some churches I wouldn't want to do a checkup because it's a bit embarrassing. Not too much going on, but here we can do it. Well, let's get into this. I've got seven letters and only three tonight. Uh, so we better uh, get started with them. You know, uh, I was interested in a story I read recently. about A guy got a job in a new office. Young guy, smart guy, uh, chartered accountant, new job, wanted to impress everyone, so he went early, went up to his office, got set up, and he was sitting there. When he heard someone coming up the stairs, he thought, I'm going to impress these guys. So he picks up the phone uh, on a fake call, and he starts to talk, and he's negotiating and sounding clever, and he's going through all this, cutting a deal, and he suddenly says, well, I'm glad you agree. I think we have a deal. And he concluded the call, put down the receiver, looked smugly at the guy and said, Now, can I help you? And the guy looks really embarrassed, shuffling about. He said, Well, well I've just come to connect up the phone. <laughs> so he's caught out. He has tried to look good, but the phone was not connected. Let's face it. He wanted to impress everybody. And that's what we all want to do. And we can do this. You know, we can impress people because of the answers. They don't see what's really going on inside. Because he was caught out. You may be caught out. But, um, you see, the show we put on is a show that we want people to see. Because we hide our weaknesses. I don't come here and tell you my weaknesses. Uh, we want to put on a good show. Now... One of the reasons I'm telling you that, each of these letters from the Lord to the seven churches starts with, I know. There's a reminder here that God sees and knows, classic scripture in the Old Testament, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the good and the evil. The Lord starts these letters by saying, look, I see everything. I see the inside and the outside. And so there's this reminder that the Lord knows what is going on in the church. And it's, it's a very important reminder because knowing all and seeing all, the Lord's spelling out the true assessment to the local church. I have my opinions of the churches I preach at, but I don't really know too much. Visitor, you don't. That's why I'm glad to get an assignment like James. I wouldn't, I didn't know you were all wealthy until I got here. 
<laughs> you see, the elders know what's going on. I don't. But it's okay, because you see, in the end, there's only one opinion that counts. And each letter starts with I know, because the Lord's opinion is the only one that counts. I know we want to impress, but the important question is, who do you want to impress? And it's so important, um, as a Christian, and it's not just to do with this local church, but it's the only one answer, really, you want to please the Lord. It's so easy to get trapped into impressing people, but it's his opinion of what we do that overrides all others. That's why these letters are important. It's the Lord's opinion of what's going on in what look like pretty good churches in some cases, because Christ is portrayed right at the end of Revelation 1, He's portrayed as the one who walks in the midst of the seven lampstands, as you know, that's the seven churches. And that's important because that chapter finishes saying his control, his authority is clear. These churches had their faults. We're going to see some serious faults. But Christ said, I'm in the midst. And the interesting thing, he proclaims them as shining like stars. I find that encouraging. There they were, spread along the trade routes of Asia. Uh, and yet he said, that I shine like stars. That, that's our responsibility. I'm hitting the stand. But that's our responsibility, to shine for the Lord. Very important. And it's important to grasp this truth that the Lord is in charge. It's a, it's a simple idea. You know, but people, can't, people might come in here, they might say, who's in charge? And the temptation to say, brother so-and-so, won't mention any names. Could be Aaron, I don't know who they'd say, but hey, I, I know a church where they might say, I say, it's brother so-and-so, but really it's his wife. <laughs> but, you know, none of those answers. The real answer, if you come into Boulevard Bible Chapel and say, who's in charge? You really ought to say, well, it's only the Lord that matters. It's the Lord, just, it's the Lord in charge. We forget that. Shepherds, elders, under-shepherds. So, we need to be ready to do what verse 7 says. We were going to read this, and I forgot to do that, but time has gone. A brother was all set to read it, and I appreciate that. But you've got your Bibles open. We're doing the first 17 verses, and I hope you read them well to yourself, brother, because we didn't do that. But, but to hear what it's saying, verse 7, to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Uh, well, there are several, but I'm going to get right to Ephesus, and I've been there, this is the ruins of Ephesus, and it's important to realize that it's now in ruins. It was a great city at this time, one of the marvels of the ancient world, it was a prosperous place, but you've got to know it was rife with immorality. Sometimes we forget what a lifestyle was like. It was actually a wonderful place, it's reconstructed here to give you an idea, it was the home of one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the beautiful temple of Artemis, or Diana. And, and this goddess was worshipped throughout Asia. But you need to know, I mean, the church existed in, in an atmosphere where the rites involved hundreds of temple prostitutes. We think this is a time of immorality. Uh, the time that, that we were talking about the church in Ephesus it was actually a declining city even then, but moral decay and immorality was at its height. 
And there was a church in Ephesus. And remember, it was a specially favoured church. Remember, Paul had spent three years teaching in Ephesus. You read the book of Ephesians, and you go, wow, their first love is evident. I mean, Timothy, who took on the baton, that was great to remind us of that, he ministered effectively in Ephesus. You know that from 1 Timothy 1, 3. And John himself, the apostle, he worked there late in life. They had John, they had Timothy, they had Paul. In fact, it was so good in Acts 16, you read that they burnt the pagan scrolls and idols, and they were worth huge bucks, millions of dollars. They took all this money, but something they just burnt it publicly. This was a strong, favored church. And the Lord starts off his letter by commending him. Note that, by the way, if you're a leader of any group and someone tries to do something and you want to make some critical comments as Jesus does to these churches, it's good to start with commendation. When I was a young preacher trying to get together a lousy sermon in a small assembly, one of the elders would all say, that was very good, David, but... <laughs> and that what encouraged me to hear it was good. So the Lord starts with a commendation uh, because there was a lot that was excellent about this church. I mean, um, it says in verse 2, they knew how to work hard. And the Lord recognizes their service and their perseverance and their spiritual discernment. Now, there is a problem that I'll say something about later. For the sake of time, he talks about his Nicolaitans, and you'll meet them again in Pergamos. So we'll keep those for the minute, because it's clear that despite that problem, the Ephesians were strong, they resisted heresy, they lived distinctively, they didn't compromise with the world, it was an immoral city, but they, they, and, they, and they had people who claimed they wanted to be leaders, they were trying to be elders and they had no call from God, and they dealt with that. So, things were pretty good, and they had two opposite challenges. They had Jewish legalism, the Jewish people were saying, well, we've got to follow the law on the one hand, and they had all this pagan immorality on the other hand, so they faced two extremes, which are around today, the legalists and the libertarians. They, were, they called them, they said, you've got to compromise. Never mind this, this. They needed to learn to be balanced, and that is important. I hope you remember that. Balanced truth is important. And they weren't like the Church of Pergamon. When we get to that, these Ephesian believers, they didn't compromise on things like emperor worship. That was a huge problem in those days. I mean, there were Christians say, well, there's no harm in a bit of incense burnt to Caesar's image. I mean, if you don't mean it, it's fine, because we've got to fit in with society. We don't want to upset folk. You hear that around, of course, all the time today. But the Ephesians took a firm stand, and it's a challenge to us, because we live in a society that advocates things that are condemned in Scripture. We live in a society where, where we're called to be accepting and tolerant, and, hey, we're supposed to compromise on things that the Lord called sinful. So... We've got to look at these people and say, it's great. These believers challenged error and sin in their society. They were ready to take a strong public stand. And I just want to challenge you on that. I mean, uh, we're so weak. Do, pluralism. I mean, eh, there's all kinds of ways to go. Immorality. 
Do we take a stand on that? They're talking radio shows. Do you ever call in? Do you ever try and speak out? I'm weak on this. This is a problem. And they were ready to do that. So things are looking good. That's a commendation. But there is a complaint. But what could be the complaints? Everything looks good here. What's the Lord to complain about? The Ephesian church worked hard. They persevered. They stayed doctrinally on a ball. Uh, what can you say about them? It's a good church to join. If I was hanging around at that time, I'd say, I'm going to that church because, well, they've got all these good things going for them. <clears throat> but something vital had declined, and this is a challenge. Over 40 years, their love for Christ had waned. And that's serious. And this is where the challenge comes in. You see, because really our faith is our loving relationship with Jesus, fundamentally. That's what Jesus died to restore. Jesus died to have a, a really personal relationship with us. You think about it. What's the image of the church in the Bible? The image of the church is the bride of Christ. Marriage. Marriage is the analogy for what the church should be like. And it's very appropriate. Let, let me use marriage as an analogy because you might be chatting with a friend and say, how's your wife? Oh, my wife's fantastic. Well, that's great. He said, she's a real worker. She washes, she irons. This is a bit of a chauvinistic husband, I suppose. But he, he says she cleans, she updates the house, she, she cooks great meals. I got a picture of a 1950s wife. <laughs> this is an old style wife. But she's great. She's a real worker. Updating the house, she takes care. She reminds me about the bills that need paying. She tells me why it's my mother's birthday. She, she never nags me. She doesn't criticize me. And you say, I say, man, you, you're a fortunate fellow. This sounds like the ideal wife. She's doing everything right. <laughs> and then, then you're talking, and he, uh, and he said, yeah, I've been married 40 years, he said. I said to my wife the other day, how about a little hug and kiss, sweetheart? And she said, she was very cold. She said, forget that. She said, you've you got to be useful. Go and get on with your work. I've got to finish my work. And I said, well, it's not sounding so good. Is a love gone sour? He said, well, yeah, I don't have a problem. It's just a lack of love. I mean, all that's gone is the love. Oh, that's not Is that a big deal? I mean, this is a human analogy, but that's what the problem was. These were hard-working Christians. I love this. This is uh, my, a couple of uh, cartoon characters we have in Canada. I don't know whether you see them up here, but uh, she says, Ralph, sit closer to me. Oh, he says, really? The hearts are booming, and uh, he says, okay. <laughs> she says, thanks. I needed your shade so I could read my text. <laughs> I mean, you get it all here. It's like about closeness. You see, the problem is in so many ways. A faithful, hard-working bride, when you think about it, she does what anyone could do. It's very useful. Who's going to be complaining? But a bride in love, I mean, that's something else because love's unique. It's personal. and uh, I wouldn't say it's that useful, but it's wonderful. I just got remarried so I could talk about this stuff, eh? But you see, hey, fidelity is the key of marriage. I know that. It's important. But love, it's... That's the key, and what he's talking about here for the church and for the spiritual life, it's love 
non-orthodoxy that a vibrant spiritual life is all about. Of course, fidelity is vitally managed. Orthodoxy is very important in the church. But our Lord's talking about love for Jesus. And it's not loving the Bible. That's so important. The Bible is the Word of God. The doctrine. Man, you've got to be doctrinally sound. But I know Christians only talk about doctrine and the activities of the church, and they always say what they're doing, but they never talk about loving Jesus, who first loved us. And, and it's a challenge. So I'm saying to is your work in the church about lo- the Lord Jesus? It's a challenge for me. You know, I study, and you give me a assignment in James, so I get my commentaries out and read the Bible and study the Scripture and... I'm getting this talk together. And then you suddenly realize, am I listening to Jesus? Look, am I feeling any joy? What am I learning about the Lord? Am I just studying and reading Scripture to increase my theological knowledge? It's a dangerous thing. I know great theologians at theological schools, and they never pray. They don't worship with joy, but they know more about the Bible than, than you can imagine. You see, because love is about persons, not about ideas. I mean, you could be everything the Ephesians were, sound and serving and slogging. But if you're not loving, you've missed it. The real thing, the point of it all, and that's what Jesus said, you've lost it, the love. You don't say, I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice to worship you. So that's the comment, that's the complaint. What's the correction? What co- the Lord doesn't leave it there. It means comfort. Very important, he said. What correction? What comfort? Because the Lord brings to these Ephesians, he said in verse 5, you remember, just think, do what you did before. Think back to the days when you had a real passion for me, when the light shone brightly in your eyes, when you thought more about who I am and what I have in store for you and my love for you. That's what you've got to think back to. And that's important. Don't forget. I got these other guys uh, that we have in our cartoon repertoire. The old guy, Grandpa's saying, have I ever told you what a great wife you are? How much I love and appreciate you. She said, not lately that I can recall. He said, well, remind me to do that one of these days. <laughs> but that's, that's, he said, I'm reminding you to do that. That's so important. You remember what happened to Peter? He, he failed the Lord. He was so sad. And Jesus, he kept talking to him. And what did he say? Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he kept repeating that because he longed for response, the response that Peter gave. And Peter said exactly what this passage is about. He said, you know. I love that. You know, Lord. I love you. And Peter went back and remembered his past passion and he, and he repented and he was renewed because the Lord was saying, look, Peter, remember, do what you did before. And that's what the Lord says to this church. And my challenge to you is, you need to do that. To start again reading and praying and singing songs of real worship as your response to the wonder of Christ's love for you. Focusing, just refocus on his marvelous grace. Because there's a wonderful promise in verse 7. It, 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 and it's a, addressed to the individual. Listen to this. It's 
this church had its problems, but it said to the one who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life in the midst of the paradise of God. That is fantastic. Now, I can't talk about it now. I don't have time, but I just want to remind you of what we said this morning. Take an eternal perspective. As you plan your life, as you plan your activities, as you make decisions every day, think about the paradise of God. Hard to do these days. Because this is an important personal promise. It's a reminder. However much the church is failing, if you as an individual listen to and respond personally to the Lord, you have the promise. I know people are waiting for the elders to move. You go around and say, well, the elders aren't doing anything. They're not doing much at my church. It's to the individual. I want to say, people may be arguing, you just listen to the Lord. Whatever they're doing, you just don't have your iPad. You listen to the Lord. Uh, it's so important that you personally do His will. And I want you to notice that uh, the Lord, as He comforts and encourages this church, gives them a word of warning. So balancing. Verse 5, He makes it clear that failure to remember, failure to repent, and I mean as a community now for the church, it will eventually lead to something terrible. The light will be extinguished. The great promise of those early years when Paul was there, when Timothy went, when, when the apostle John went, and, and they did all that stuff, and the light will go out, and it happened. I've been to Turkey. I mean, it's 98% Muslim now. And I've stood at the ruins of Ephesus. And I've got to tell you, every time I go past a closed church, I go past this lovely church, it's now a restaurant. Converted. And I think, what's happened? The light's gone out. Well, the clues are right in this passage. You know, the assembly I went to in London, England, in the 60s, was a thriving place. 200 people, a big youth group. More life than a boulevard, and you've got a lot of life here. I went back a few years ago, it's a Sikh community centre. It's gone. It's happening to the assemblies in England. Closing down. Hundreds in London. Gone. And I think of this morning and I realise that every local... Listen to this. Every local church is only one generation from extinction. That's not the universal church. The gates of hell will never prevail against it. The Lord will triumph. But a local church... And that's, I was so excited this morning. I counted 12 young men standing there talking. <coughs> young guys. And I saw about six or seven young women, a bit out of balance. I thought, man, if I could get them together, the church would die. You know, I'm just kidding. But it's great to be in a lively church where you can get Christian partners and there's a church for tomorrow. And that's so encouraging. But you see, it's only one generation from extinction, and I've seen it so often, I've lived long enough. So let's heed the first of the seven churches. Seven times, you know, it says, Hear, if you've got an ear, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Spend a lot of time on Ephesus, but so important about love. Let's quickly move to Smyrna. Smyrna. Smyrna again in Turkey, the second largest port, uh, Isma. Uh, the, the city of Smyrna had a very strong alliance with Rome. It was the site of the second largest temple in Asia. Uh, it, it, it was a temple built to celebrate the, the emperor. So Smyrna was an interesting place. It was rich. 
It was proud. It was beautiful. But the important thing to notice, it was fanatically loyal to Rome. So it was a very difficult place for Christians. I mean, you could lose your life because it was a center of emperor worship. In fact, to not worship the emperor in Smyrna was a capital offense. So you imagine being a Christian. The believers in Smyrna lived a tough life. It was tough to get jobs. You couldn't get a job unless you professed allegiance to the emperor. I mean, in a religious sense. They were routinely threatened with death. It was like living in, in, in Iraq today because, well, they said, I can't participate in the cult of emperor worship. So it's not surprising. Smyrna is only one of two of these churches that was praised without reserve and the other was Philadelphia. Smyrna and Philadelphia praised by the Lord without reserve because it was so tough. And I want you to notice in verse 8 the Lord presents himself to the Smyrna. How Every letter he presents himself in a different way. You study that. Can't go into it just at this moment. But he presents himself in a way that would encourage Christians Many of them are about to lose life on earth, remember. And he reminds them, he said, Look, I'm the first, I'm the last, I'm the one that was dead and is alive. How encouraging. And I want you to notice from verse 10, the Lord makes it clear, Look, Satan's behind all this. And that's why you can't say, Man, Humphreys comes in, he talks about churches 2,000 years ago. I mean, we're in America now, things are different. Why doesn't he get with the program? talk about today is because the devil was behind it and the devil is still powerful, it's still unscrupulous and it's still as active as ever. And these believers who endured slander and poverty and prison and probably death or possibly death were being besieged by what is actually satanic powers. And don't forget, if you think this is old stuff from another century, Jesus warned us in the Gospels that towards the end, things are going to get worse and not better. So when you get Ebola and Boko Haram and ISIS and you hear these dreadful things, I couldn't even show you the pictures of what's happening. And you think, what is going on? People say to me, what the world, what's the world coming to? By the way, if they do say that, tell them you know. They'll say, do you have a crystal ball or something? Hey, you've got the Word of God. You can tell them. But, but you see, it challenges us to face the need to take seriously what Jesus said because he warned us, there's no surprise, but to take an eternal perspective. Because Jesus said to these poor saints who were probably going to lose their life, many of them, look, don't worry so much about the first death. That's not the last word. So, though you've got economic hardship, you're standing for Jesus, and do you know what he says? And think about what I talked about this morning about true riches. He says in verse 9, you're rich. They couldn't get jobs. They were, they were poor. But Christ's measure of wealth is so different from those who equate it to economic prosperity. And I wanted to say that in view of what we said this morning. As I said this morning, the Western church and the North American churches, what did I say? Do you remember this? I like this turn of phrase. Many pampered bodies are homes to starve souls. And I noticed that. Uh, and I talked about the prosperity gospel and all things. By the way, I want to apologize for something this morning. You know, I put that picture up of 
Preachers of Prosperity Gospel because it was a nice picture I got from Time magazine and it occurred to me afterwards I didn't research all those people and I shouldn't have used the names of Christian preachers just arbitrary like that because there was somebody on that picture who preaches the gospel and I, and I apologize uh, in absentia to those you should not criticize a fellow believer unless you know what you're talking about so that was an accident of a picture and I was grateful that someone pointed out that there was someone in there who probably doesn't preach the prosperity gospel. Uh, that's by the way, uh, but I do want to remind you of what we said this morning, what the Lord said, lay up treasure in heaven, because this call to turn away from materialism is still a big challenge, and it was relevant to the Smyrna church. And the Lord reminds them, he said, look, true riches are found in me, I know you don't have much of this earthly riches, but the crown of life, the crown of life which is so different from the transient glitter of the world, the eternal glory is yours. And when I burnt that thing and it disappeared, I hope you remembered that. So the question uh, for Smyrna, uh, the, the challenge from Smyrna is just to remember all we said this morning and I showed you a gold-plated Ferrari and I didn't get an answer. Whether I don't know whether a Christian should have that. It depends how much money he's got and what he does with it. But somebody said they preferred a different car. So I'll put a new one out. But the challenge is, is Christ enough to bring happiness? And you're ready for the kind of world Jesus warned us. I just want to remind you of this. One Christian is killed every three minutes for their faith today. That's an average statistic. While I'm speaking to you tonight, probably ten have been killed. And there are people out there calling for those who take the faith seriously like us to be beheaded. I don't spend much time praying about this. But it's reflected in what was going on in that church. Right. One left. I'm not going to talk about ISIS and that anymore because I just want to say a word about Pergamon. Another ancient center of culture. It's a capital city in the province of Asia. But besides those temples for worshiping Rome, that was a, another problem. It was a crazy place. They had multiple religious temples. And they were built for worshiping gods like Zeus and Athena. And one of the big things about this place is there was a huge altar to Zeus. Uh, and, and it was inscribed. I mean, you imagine you're a Christian and there's huge altars there and it's inscribed, Zeus the Savior. Now, you're a Christian. You know, there's one name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. So it's blasphemous. You see that. And... And then, yet, the most notable amongst all these gods was the cult of Asclepius. Asclepius was a god of healing. And you know this, because the symbol of Asclepius was a serpent, picked up by the medical profession, not because of the, the paganism, but because of the symbol. Uh, Pergamon was obsessed with ser serpent symbols. They were everywhere. And the scapular sat on a throne with a staff in one hand and then his other he had the head of a serpent. So the Christians in Pergamon were offended. I mean the serpent image, they knew the link with the devil. 
they knew the account of the fall. They were well skilled in the Old Testament. So what was it called? It was called the seat of Satan. Now you need to understand this. Because the vicious persecution at Smyrna, that was bad, but it was more serious in Pergamon. That's why if you read the passage, and I apologize we didn't read it, but it was a faithful believer called Antipas. All he did was say, I am not going to say Caesar is Lord, because there's one Lord. And he paid for it. He was burnt alive. I think about that. I mean, what would you have done if they said to you, just say Caesar is Lord, it's okay, all you've got to do is say it. Otherwise we're going to burn you alive. I could only hope. I could just hope I'd be loyal to the Lord. I, I can't imagine. I'm so skilled at disguising what I really believe sometimes. I, I don't know whether I bend and avoid confrontation and whittle out of it. But I realize Jesus didn't call us to be like that. And I think about today, you know, so many misguided Muslims live with hate and they're willing to die to eliminate Christians for a false hope of heaven. And in fact, Turkey, where all these churches were, is 97% Muslim. I told you that. Now, I think, I, we live in love. We have a certain eternal hope. It's based on the promises of Jesus, the one who rose from the dead to validate their truth. Jesus, who said to the Smyrnians, don't be afraid. And he said in the Gospels of those that kill the body. Now, I find that a huge challenge. So he commanded them, of course. He said, I know what you're suffering. I know how strong the pressure is in this place where Satan has such control on people's lives. You see, the Lord knew and he appreciated their standing. He praised them. They didn't deny him. And they remained faithful to him. And it's all good. And you say, what could possibly be wrong? And I want to tell you, it's quarter past, should I tell you or not? What do you want me to do, Malcolm? I want to tell you what was wrong. Give me a minute, a two, five. All right? I don't know why this took so long, but I want to tell you. You see, there were a lot of overcomers there. And the, uh, but there were, and it's personal, there are others that compromise. The church's problem, it, was, it wasn't this persecution from outside. You'd think it would be. If we were persecuted like that, would be, it was described as, uh, as the teaching of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. Now, this is an allusion. It's a serious complaint. It was an allusion to Numbers 22 and 24, to Balaam, who led Israel into apostasy. That's a long story. You can look up 2 Peter 2 and Jude. You probably remember there's references to the apostates there. But I want to tell you this story. It's an astounding story. You probably know it. Israel uh, um, was surrounded by enemies, of course, and fearing the Israelites, King Balak of Moab, you read all about this in the Old Testament, he paid Balaam to repel the Israelites. He said, look, I'm going to pay you big bucks. You go and curse the Israelites. Because he was a prophet. So he goes to do it. It's a, it's a comic story. I see, you've got to read this. He tried to curse Israel. Three times he goes to do it. But every time, he could only bless them. He spoke blessing. It's a comic performance. In the end, he said, I can't do it. I can only say what God puts in my mouth. 
And Balaam was really angry. Uh, and, and, um, and of course, um, Balaam's keen to get his money. Money's always a problem, of course. Uh, I talked about that this morning. So he said, well, I've got another scheme. I know how we can withdraw God's favor from Israel. You get the king of Moab and the king of Midian to arrange a big feast in honor of all the idols and invite the children of Israel to participate in the ceremonies. And they did it, man. And a lot of Jews fell for the rules. They participated in the celebrations. And they were seduced by the Moabite women and they sacrificed to idols. It's an incredible story. And... So, why am I telling you that? By encouraging accommodation to godless practices and immorality, Balaam came to stand for all those who advocate compromise and seduce God's people into sin. So, this is a big problem. At Pergamon, they said you've got Balaamites. And they were like the Nicolaitans. I'm not going to distinguish at the moment. We don't have time. But they were saying, look, idols aren't much of a big deal. Look, just make gestures of loyalty to Rome. It's not that significant. What was happening is, those who followed the teaching of these Balaamites who acted like that, the Nicolaitans, were violating and misusing the freedom and grace they had in Christ. And it was a serious problem. So they would eat food at the festivals with the pagan gods. And what did it lead to? Carelessness in avoiding sexual activity and it was so much part of the feast that no one worried about it young people it's a serious problem this sexual immorality absolutely ruins your spiritual progress and that was a problem you see they slipped into it so easy to trim our faith to prevailing wind my neighbor I said I've got a friend Jane I said to my neighbors I'm so lonely. They said, well, when's she moving in? I said, oh, no, she's just a friend. We're not married. Well, what, why would you worry about being married if you're lonely? Here's me, a minister of the gospel. He couldn't understand why Jane didn't come in and live with me. Because that's the prevailing wind. And I said, we've got to take a strong public stand in support of all the really basic things like the authority of Scripture, biblical morality, the deity of Christ, because it's taken for granted that it doesn't matter. And that was the problem in this church, and let's not be a problem in our churches. One last thing, because it's a wonderful ending. I can now understand why Christ introduced himself to this church as a sharp, double-edged sword. I now know what's going on. And you know, Hebrews, the Word of God is alive, it's powerful, sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword. And I want to tell you, that sword that Jesus introduced himself as is symbolic of the penetrating Word of God that judges our thoughts, our attitudes, our motives, and reaches into the heart. And the call of these letters is to let the Word of God purge your life And the last call is to the overcomer. And you guys, all of it, we cannot be Christians who are hanging on by our fingertips. This call is to be a Christian who overcomes, maintains a distinctive lifestyle, and does it to the end without faltering. 
whatever persecutions, whatever subtle temptations come, and that's the call, and if you do that, listen to this. It's fantastic. Verse 17, to those who overcome, I'll give to some of the hidden manna. I'll give a white stone. I'll give a new name written on, known only to the one that receives it. That is an incredible promise. By the way, I'm looking forward to it because I can never remember your names. <laughs> but you'll have nobody else to know I'll fit right in there. <laughs> but but uh, seriously, it's a fantastic promise because that hidden man is a reference to the manna which was hidden in the ark. It was a symbol of the sustenance which God gave his people when they traveled in the wilderness. And you know John 6. Jesus liked himself, likened himself to the manna. He said, I'm the true bread from heaven. And this promise is this. The overcomer promised the hidden manna is promised bread from heaven. And what the Lord promises is unique sustenance. I'm going to reveal myself to the overcomer. It's going to be intimate. It's going to be personal. You're going to have a new name. It's only you and I. And it's very, very personal. And it will be wonderful. And it will be eternal. And that's why love is so important. You say, it'll be you and Jesus. It's wonderful. And it's more than that. You know, the Roman custom in those days was to reward victors in athletic games with white stones. They had their names on them. And those white stones, they were like the ticket to the awards banquet. And that's what they're talking about. Jesus promises these overcomers, he said, you've got an entrance to the victory celebration in heaven. You've heard this expression, blackboard, probably. It means you're not invited. That, it comes from that. So what does it finish up saying? Say, the one who overcomes, the one who can do this stuff and avoid this immorality and be faithful and live distinctively, they have special privileges. They have the promise of an eternal reward in heaven. It's not material. It's relational. Because the real reward they're to do with intimacy with the Lord Jesus. You see, white stones, another meaning is white stones meant not guilty. They gave him in the court, if you got a white stone, you're not guilty. And the promise is this, look, you're admitted, and you're not guilty, and you have a new name, and only you and the Lord know that. And it's wonderful, it's personal, and it's intimate. And let me mention the gospel, if you don't have it, you've got to get it. You've got to be there. You can be became not guilty. And you can know the Lord. You just have to come and receive Him. That's the wonder of the Gospel. So, just, just take these lessons, take these lectures, I mean letters, not lectures, uh, and nurture your love for the Lord. And, and say, I'm going to live boldly for Him. It's an antagonistic world, but I'm going to live without compromise because I've got to tell you, the reward is in every sense out of this world. May God help us to do it. May God help us to share these promises. Now I did it. I went way over, but I wanted to do this tonight. And I thank you for your patience. God bless you. Lord, may we know your blessing as we finish. We thank you for these letters. We thank you for your patience and promises. And we pray that all of us will one day enter without guilt into that wonderful place where you know us intimately and you give us a new name. And we pray this not only for our blessing, but for the glory of the Lord Jesus. Amen.
Well, you got two messages for the price of one. I do apologize. It was so long.